Welcome to Think Big with Dan and Kasim. Join hosts Dan Melnick and Kasim Masood as they explore big ideas, limitless possibilities, and engage with visionaries, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who dare to dream big, get inspired, motivated, and find practical tips for personal growth. Think big, dream bigger, and ignite your potential. Think big with Dan and Cosm, and Cosm's not joining us today. It's just me, and our guest today is Mark Nathan. So, Mark, if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, tell us where you live and what you do for a living. Sure. So, Mark Nathan, I live in Austin, Texas, and I'm the head of business development. We call it the cli- head of client strategy for a startup law firm called Egan Nelson here in Texas. Awesome. So, how did you get your job? It's a very convoluted story, but I'm glad you asked. Uh, the job was essentially offered to me because I kept putting one of the lawyers in the office's blog posts in my newsletter that I started, he started seeing a lot of traffic from it. He kind of reached out to me and said, let's go for lunch. I said, I don't know. What do we need to go for lunch for? So just come to my office, we'll make it easy. And I told him, listen, I don't go to law offices without a subpoena. What do you want? Mm-hmm. So he said, just come on by, no agenda, we'll chat. And I left there with a job and that was seven years ago. So it worked out very well. He's no longer with the firm, but I still am. And ultimately my job is to help figure out a, how to qualify companies bringing them in. That's obvious and easy. That's just a straight biz dev sales job. But the back end of my job is somewhat special and somewhat, in my mind, unique, and I love it. I actually help our clients raise capital, which is obviously important to a lot of early stage startup companies. So when you're working with clients and helping them raise money, what does that process look like for you? Pretty loosey-goosey, honestly. It's not a set process. There's not a lot of formalities, not a lot of paperwork, but ultimately it's a series of phone calls. It's typically the get to know you phone call. It's figuring out what their story is. It's almost like any, it's like doing a podcast or having a mentor conversation. It's basically figuring out where they are so you can figure out where they're going. And the subsequent phone calls are, okay, now that we kind of understand what you need, we go through deck polishing and making sure they understand what the financial ramifications of taking somebody else's money are. And then it's really just about rinse and repeat of making introductions and setting up those meetings. So when you're working with founders, you know, what would you say in terms of, you know, folks that want to raise more money, what sets them apart? You know, these companies that we say like are more qualified to raise more as opposed to ones who are not. Honestly, it really boils down to credibility. And that's the one thing that's the, that's the magic thing that nobody can really put their finger on. It's like asking what's going to be a hit movie. You kind of have some ideas if you've got a great director, a great script, a great actor, but it's still a lot of things that can happen to make a blockbuster, not a blockbuster. Same is true for companies. So a lot of it has to do with luck and timing. I know it doesn't sound very good to a lot of people, but it really does. But I like to believe that you can increase your surface area of luck if you go out and be proactive about certain things. Go to the right events, talk to the right people. And frankly, and this is something that's been hard for me personally, it's sometimes not going to certain things. You know, and I'll give you a perfect example. I knew an entrepreneur who was at every single startup event you could possibly imagine. And it got around, the concept was, well, listen, if you're all these events and doing all these things, like, how are you working? What are you doing? So it is a double-edged sword, but honestly, spending time building a network and really understanding what the needs are of your investors, that's usually the best way to do it. And if I can add one more quick thing, and I talk to a lot of my clients about this, it's it's very, very rare. I'm talking about the 1% case where the founder is not the largest shareholder of the business. 
So if the founder is coming to me looking for capital, I look at them and say, look, you're the largest shareholder in this business. What's the best interest of the shareholder? It usually takes them a couple of beats to understand what the difference is. They're an owner, they're running and it's their business, they're the founder. So what, what do you mean on the shareholder? Well, it's about a different mindset. If their job is to not work in the business, to work on the business, you have to think about it like a shareholder and how you maximize value. And that is precisely the opportunity that they offer to outside investors. Instead of begging them for a couple of dollars, they're sharing an opportunity of a way to make money. It's a very different mindset, but it does work quite often. Well, how does being in a place like Austin help you in terms of you know working with founders and raising money? Most of the people that you work with local, or what does that process look like? Most of my work here is local Austin, but that's on purpose. I've got clients all across the world and, and, and all over the North America. I spend most of my time here in Austin because I love Austin. Austin's been extraordinarily good to me. And one thing you'll learn, and I, I think I heard a rumor that you might be moving here soon, yeah. but- the uh, the true story about Austin, and I can tell you this without a doubt, and I am pitch perfect example of this. Every single business person side hustle in Austin is helping each other. That is very different from any other city. Now you get some similar vibes in Dallas, Houston, and San Antonio, but and you just don't get them anywhere else. It's, it might be a Southern thing, it might be a Texan thing, but most business environments are sharp elbowed. Everybody's competing for scarce resources. Austin just seems very, very, very collaborative and laid back. Even my most direct competitors, like nose to nose, like Coke and Pepsi, Burger King and McDonald's, we're still friends and we still talk to each other all the time and we share deals all the time. We are ambitious, but we're not super competitive. So we're not pushing people down. We're raising everybody up. It's just a, it's a vibe that nobody seems to understand until you're actually here on the ground, but it's great. That's awesome. So in terms of raising money, right? Um, I think in 2023, it's been a lot more challenging compared to last year. You know, what have you seen and where, what trends and what direction are things going in when it comes to um, raising capital? So let's just define this real quick. We're talking about a serious professional round of capital from serious professional investors, not mom and dad, that's friends and family, not your credit cards, not grants, not loans, not competition wins. We're talking about raising money from professionals. Now, most people, when I say professional capital raise, you think, okay, venture capitalists, sure. That makes sense. That's what they do. The truth is venture capitalists make up a very tiny fraction of the asset class of people lending money to early stage companies. Now, they're the most visible. They're the ones with the name in the paper. They're the ones with the podcast. They're the ones we all track and follow. But VCs are not the only source of income or, or capital for emerging companies. And they only represent about 3% of all companies a year. And those are scalable businesses. So let's say your company is not a scalable business. It's a, for lack of a better term, and nobody really loves this term, but, but a lifestyle business or even a small business, which I hate. I hate the concept of small business. Nothing small. It just fits within your container. So the environment is quite different than it was even a year ago. The market's changed, the mindset's changed. Really, six months is where things really have changed. So January of 2023 is a heck of a lot different than February 2023. And certainly March, after Silicon Valley Bank crashed, it's much different. But I will tell you that money is still flowing, maybe not as much, but real companies still get funded and profitable companies are always, always, always in demand for real bona fide VCs. So you're saying that as of right now, it's more about cash flow and profits as opposed to like a year ago where it was just, you know, oh. Growth you know, at all costs. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that those days of growth at all costs and 
because I'm in Texas, I could say that's very much a, a West Coast, California mentality. Grow, grow, grow. East Coast, New York mentality is show me the numbers, show me the profitability. Texas is somewhat of a hybrid. We probably lean a little bit more towards California based on our growth and our ambition, but we're also a little bit like Missouri. It's, it's a show me state. So here in Texas, show me your financials, show me a path to revenue and a path to profitability. No Texas investor that I know is going to go in blind just for a great idea. You kind of have to show a little bit of traction. So in terms of industries that you're seeing, you know, in terms of trend, what have you seen has been, I guess, maybe the easiest or industries where you're seeing have been able to raise more money compared to other industries as of right now? Sure. So the staples of Texas are, in Texas, it's pretty obvious, especially guy coming from Houston, oil and gas and everything else. The everything else mostly is either manufacturing and obviously medical. So healthcare is a very, very big deal here in Texas. Not as big as it is in Boston, but ultimately we have a very major, major healthcare, life sciences and medical device industry here. So that gets a lot of eyeballs from a venture funding standpoint. Oil and gas and the companies that serve oil and gas are still the top notch here. But I, I'm very proud to say software is really growing. And software, specifically e-commerce, and I am very particularly proud of this, we've got a massive consumer packaged goods industry here that nobody knows about. It's completely underground. Nobody talks about it. It's sort of an also ramp. We just don't think about it. It's probably our fourth or fifth largest industry, but it is massively growing and I love being a part of it. So when it comes to CPG and e-commerce, you know, how has your role changed in the last several years from the time when you started working and just compared to now? It's a great question. So I started out in the SaaS business. So my background is really more sales marketing for agencies and companies that deal with B2B software. So like most dot-com babies, I'm a software guy. It's what I know. About 2004, my dad and I had a small investment in a chocolate company up in Vancouver, Canada. It got me to some of the trade shows. I started looking around and sort of sniffing around what that market and industry looked like. And I was pretty impressed, but still I was a software guy. So I stuck with that. Flash forward a few years later, this is six years ago. I ran into a friend of mine and asked him why we don't do more CPG work here in Austin. And he said, I don't know, why not? So we threw a very simple happy hour and that happy hour rolled into a wake up, which is called, which is a monthly meetup for coffee. And we regularly get 100, 120 people every time here in Austin. We've since expanded to Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, and even LA. And uh, the fact is, is that the CPG market is growing. People are coming here. There's a lot of activity. We're missing some of the infrastructure. We don't have the co-packers. We don't have the cold storage. We don't have the financial backing of everybody, but we're getting there. And it's just fascinating to see. And by the way, I'm doing that in parallel. It's not just CPG I'm focused on. I'm still doing software, but the CPG and the DTC is just a lot more fun for me. So what you say that in terms of technology, right, you're talking about software and mm -hmm. CPG. I feel like there's so much overlap, right, when you talk about AI or implementing technology because it's e-commerce, right? What trends are you seeing in terms of AI, how it can potentially help some of these e-com companies or CPG companies scale even more? That's a great question. I, I'll tell you that, and you know this, everybody knows this right now, everything has got an AI can't do it. Something. If your company doesn't have AI somewhere built into it, there's something wrong as of right now. This was the same thing that happened two years ago. Everything had an NFT or a blockchain attached. 
a few years before that, I've seen a lot of these cycles. Trends come and go, and we all know that. But I think, and this is just, I, I don't think I'm, I'm telling any secrets here. I think AI, and you can call AI what it is. AI is an umbrella uh, term that encompasses machine learning, large language models, all the things that look like AI. But for the purpose of this conversation, let's just call AI what it is. Just a bucket of uh, technologies and tools and techniques to make things work better. AI is going to transform just about everything that we all know about and a lot of things we don't know about. So I think AI is going to really help with brokerages. Anybody that's basically searching for information or searching for the best deal, I think AI is going to wipe out a lot of individual middleman brokers. I think we're going to understand price parity is going to be a lot closer. We're not going to have to worry about logistics and transport and physical geography as much as we used to. I think that it's going to help very seriously with supply and demand generation, and especially, especially with discovery of different brands, which is very exciting to me. But you mentioned blockchain. You mentioned, yep. so do you think that blockchain is something that is here to stay or more of a trend? Or is that going to come back? I and mean, where do you see blockchain coming into CPG and e-commerce? As a tool, blockchain makes a lot of sense. But the one thing I learned a long time ago is that if you can replace the words shared spreadsheet with the word blockchain, it's probably not that revolutionary. So I think blockchain is definitely here to stay. But to me, it's a it's like machine language. It shouldn't really matter. The consumer or even the business to business user should never even see it. It's just a tool they use. Do you care what Google was written in? No, you just Google something. And now you're not even Googling something, you're going on chat AP, uh, chat GPT anyway. So um, I think I think blockchain in particular is an infrastructure tool. It should have never seen the light of day from a consumer point. We should not have been talking about blockchain on the front cover of Fortune and Forbes magazine because it's a nerdy technology that only works when you need it to work. And frankly, it doesn't need to be applied to everything. But as far as supply chain and manufacturing, all that, yeah, blockchain is definitely here to say, no question. So in terms of blockchain and you know, crypto, for example, have you seen companies that you work with use that as a tool? For example, crypto wallets or crypto payments, because I think that's a big thing. We see lots of inflation. There's people that don't want to pay the fees. You know, have you seen that? And do you think that there's going to be more of that in the next few years? Sure. So there's been a couple of really interesting applications for blockchain and NFTs that I really like. Some of them are, let's face it, they're a little frothy and they're a little more... Um, wishful thinking than anything else. So I'm not a huge fan of all the NFT art stuff and all the board ape and all that. that's just not me. I've seen a couple of interesting applications. There's a company called Venkman Labs here in Austin that's using blockchain for loyalty points, which I think is kind of neat and definitely applicable. Um, we've got a couple of others in the supply chain side of things, especially on the government, because tracking logistics of of multiple users, multiple carriers, it's hard to do without a single dashboard. So I'm seeing blockchain do something like that. You know, blockchain is built for tracking of different things. I saw a, recently a South American company that's basically putting QR codes on individual cows and using that through a blockchain to track where that meat is going or all those uh, byproducts are going. So I, I get that. That's pretty easy. But once again, it's kind of boring infrastructure stuff. It's not really super rah-rah great investment stuff. Right. So you've worked with so many founders. What qualities have you seen that differentiates the ones that have been successful versus the ones that aren't as successful? There's a lot of standard answers for this question. Everybody kind of knows them in the entrepreneur space, but I'll tell you what the, the thing for me is, you could call it, call it grit, you can call it persistence, you can call it annoying, you can call it whatever you want, but just that idea that you're not going to stop until you see something go 
that's usually a positive trait. It can be very, very, very bad for people who just won't give up a bad idea. So I will tell you from my perspective, the easiest way I could determine if somebody's going to be a legitimate, professional, successful entrepreneur, it's very simple. It's whether they're coachable or not. And coachability is not whether you're going to listen to my advice and do it to a T. That's not it. Coachability is listening to something synthesizing and understanding and analyzing it based on your situation and your individual problems and then doing what's best. Um, the best entrepreneurs I've seen, the ones that are the most successful, that that are healthy and sane and wealthy and all those things are able to be coached without being overwhelmed. And that's especially true when two equally smart coaches are telling them or mentors are telling them two opposite things. And in the tech stars world, they call that mentor whiplash. But when I see it, it's basically somebody who's able to take two different opinions, figure them out, synthesize them, and then make the right decision. That's the hard part. So coachability is my answer for that. Yeah, it's difficult. I feel like with things like that, you have to sort of beta test, you know, see, okay, I'm going to try this with half of what I'm doing and try, you know, and kind of see what's working. Okay, this works more for me. I'm going to go in that direction. That's right. And that's a hard part because some some entrepreneurs just want the right answer. Just tell me the right answer. Is it A or is it B? Forget A, B testing. I just need to know. But unfortunately, and this is something that a lot of entrepreneurs don't understand. I was talking to a woman yesterday about the same thing. Most entrepreneurs don't realize that nobody has done what they're doing in their situation at this current time, in this market, in this particular geography. So everything is brand new. You're hacking the path through the jungle. You might know where the direction is. You might know where the you know, the oasis is down the road, but you don't know how to get there. And the truth is nobody can help you, even if they've hacked the similar path a hundred times before, it's still yours. So my job as a mentor or somebody who's involved with entrepreneurs is kind of help them see the path, not actually hack the path for them. Awesome. So what would you say is the one biggest piece of advice that you wish you knew when you started your career that you know today? So another easy question to mess up. So here's what I'm going to tell you. This is my pat answer to anybody asks me for my advice. I don't give advice. I learned a long time ago from one of my very favorite mentors that nobody cares about my advice. Nobody wants to listen. But sometimes if you're doing it the right way, they'll listen to your opinion. So I'm not going to give advice to my younger self, but I'll give my opinion to my younger self. Yeah. And the opinion is very, very simple. You know right from wrong because you grew up with that. That's how you're built. That's how you are. That's forget school, forget education, forget parent. You have an inherent sense of ethics and right and wrong. I would say only focus on things you know are 100% in the right. It's very easy, especially younger in career, to kind of do anything that comes in the door or learn from things and do certain things. Um, It's a lot easier to be on the light side than the gray side and definitely not on on the dark side. So I would just say, follow your ethics and you'll do just fine. And I only say that because I've seen so many entrepreneurs that take shortcuts. They, I don't want to say they cheat, but they, they, they're, they're looking for the fast track and it never works. And it just makes you look bad. And even if you win, it teaches you the wrong lesson and it makes you make the worst mistake bigger next time. So I just say, take the high road, I guess is the best way to say that. 100%. And that's really good advice. So if somebody watching this wanted to reach out to you, reach out to your company, what's the best way for them to um, find you and reach out to you? Easiest way for most professionals like me is LinkedIn. So I'm Mark, M-A-R-C, 1919 on everything, on every social network you could possibly imagine. But reaching out to me on LinkedIn is, is, is good, but it's also a problem. I hit the limit on connections on LinkedIn. So I have to, every week, clear out some people to to 
add on, which is a very first rule, very braggy problem. So forgive me. But easiest way to do it is not just to show up, but um, I host a lot of events. I pro I publish two separate newsletters. So I'm easy to track down. And I'm easy to kind of get a hold of. Um, one of the favorite things I do every year, and I don't know if you've been yet, but now that you'll be in Austin, you'll come to South by Southwest. Every year I publish a guide, a VIP insider's guide to South by, which is all the events and everything else that are not all the official pages. So that's a good way to get a hold of me as well. Awesome. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure chatting with you. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Bye.